Gospel of Matthew this morning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and I'll read that section now. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matthen, and Matthen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. We're beginning a new series in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew is the second longest book in the New Testament, and we're going to go through the entire book, not in one sitting. I favor going verse by verse through books for several reasons. First, it is preaching the full counsel of God. There's nowhere to hide when you go verse by verse. It forces you to cover difficult things. For a preacher, it forces you to cover certain things that you might not have selected if left to your own devices. And honestly, really, this morning's passage is a prime example of that. It's a genealogy. It's not what we think of as Matthew's greatest hits, but it's the Word of God and therefore something that we should study. Another advantage of going verse by verse through books is that it helps you see how an entire book of the Bible fits together. That our current book, Matthew, is not just a bunch of unrelated stories, that it's a unified whole where everything fits together. A couple of introductory comments. Matthew is 28 chapters, 1,071 verses. It's going to take a while to preach this book. Some might be thinking, how long? I think the better question is, how sad will you be when we finish Matthew? The answer to that is very sad. The plan is to break up the book into a series of mini-series. And so this first series, titled The King is Born, looks at chapters 1 and 2 
a common Christmas time passage looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. Lord willing, the plan is to begin the new year with a second series, chapters three and four, take a break at Easter time, and then later in the spring, resume chapters five, six, and seven. So throughout the year, take a couple of breaks from Matthew, but for the most part, to be in Matthew until we finish this book. Now, a few introductory comments on the Gospel of Matthew. It was written by Matthew. Matthew was one of the 12 apostles. Of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only Matthew and John were written by apostles. Matthew was Jewish, and so his Gospel has a heavy emphasis in the Old Testament and fulfillment of prophecies in the life and ministry of Jesus. Honestly, Matthew's Judaism helps make sense of why this book opens with a genealogy. You see genealogies all over the place in the Old Testament. It's linking the Israelites to their ancestors. An interesting fact about Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew's profession, is that he was a tax collector. That might not mean a whole lot to us today, but in his day, being a tax collector was a pretty scandalous job. They were hated by their fellow Jews because he was collecting taxes on behalf of Rome from the Jewish people. And so he would have been looked at as a traitor. Aside from Judas, Matthew's probably the next most notorious of the apostles. And I point that out because skeptics have sometimes questioned if Matthew really wrote the Gospel of Matthew. If the early church had lied, Matthew would have been the last person they would have said wrote this Gospel. Also, we have early agreement from the church fathers that Matthew wrote this book, and nothing from antiquity contradicts that. The gospel was probably written sometime in the mid to late 70s to early 80s AD. The main theme of the gospel of Matthew, which will come up again and again throughout this study, is that Jesus is the true king who ushers in the kingdom of heaven. With that, we come to the gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew's gospel begins by introducing us to his genealogy. It's linking Jesus to David, the great king of Israel, and to Abraham, the man through whom the Lord had established his covenant. And Jesus will come from the family of both of these men. And the question you might ask is, why open with a genealogy though? I'll share this story. I've mentioned this before, but I never went to church growing up. When I was in high school, I took a class where we studied world religions. And to me, it was really interesting to learn about different faith traditions. And honestly, the one that made a lot of sense was Judaism. The idea of a good and loving and righteous God made sense to me. What I did not understand is why you needed Jesus if you had that. The issue was that I didn't understand who Jesus was. I thought you had God and then this Jesus guy. I didn't understand that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And what this genealogy shows us at the beginning of Matthew is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And as we study his life, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the divine plan through history, where God sent Jesus into a world that was sinful, but where Jesus was without sin. 
Jesus came to fulfill the plan of God, to live out the will of God, to speak the word of God, and to show the righteousness of God. But in all of his perfection and goodness and glory, Jesus was betrayed. Even this was part of the divine plan because it had to happen. Jesus came into a world that was dead in sin and died. But he died so that he could be raised to life. And it is through his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection that everyone who believes in Jesus can be forgiven. We could never earn God's love or forgiveness on our own. But because Jesus is Lord, he is able to forgive. Because he died and rose, he showed his power over physical life and death. And because he lives today, it is Christ and Christ alone who can give eternal life. So verse 1 introduces the genealogy. Verses 2 through 16 give further elaboration on a genealogy that leads from Abraham to Joseph to Jesus. The plan this week is to dig into this genealogy. If we're being honest, it can be easy to skim through this list, just like it's a list of names, and keep on reading and looking for something else. But this list of name, names points us to the gospel, to the grace of God, to the mission of Christ, and to the providential hand of God working throughout history. It's also where the New Testament begins. You don't watch a great movie and skip the first scene. Since Matthew breaks his genealogy into three sections, that's what we'll do as well today. And we'll look at this passage from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile to Jesus. First part, from Abraham to David. Verse 2. The genealogy begins with Abraham. I'd argue that Abraham is the most significant figure in the Old Testament. Abraham is the man with whom the Lord makes a covenant promise of land, of blessing, and of offspring, which will be as innumerable as the stars. But if you read Abraham's story in Genesis, there's a problem. He and his wife Sarah are childless. In old age, the Lord gives Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac. He's the next name listed. The line goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. This is the line that you see in the book of Genesis. The text mentions Judah and his brothers. Matthew gives special attention to both Judah and his brothers because they constitute the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel who will be significant in the Old Testament. But Judah specifically is highlighted because he's the one who carries on the family line. Once we get past Judah, we're at the end of Genesis, and we don't see the individuals in the line as prominently throughout the Exodus saga, but they're still there, and God is still working. Sometimes the Lord is quietly at work, but he's no less at work in those times. God is faithful to this line throughout the centuries, working through time and space to bring forth His promised Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. God is working today. At times in our own lives, we might see it more clearly than others. At times in church history, it might seem more apparent, but God is no less at work. God is intimately connected and at work in our world today, as much as He was centuries ago. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of David and he's the God of today. 
Verse 3 mentions Judah as the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, Tamar is noteworthy because she's a woman. Women are occasionally listed in Old Testament genealogies, but they are male-dominated lists. Matthew's genealogy lists four women from the Old Testament plus Mary at the end of the list. Focusing on the women in this part of the genealogy, these women are fairly prominent in the Old Testament. But what's interesting is that they're not the most prominent women in the Old Testament. No mention of Sarah, the wife of Abraham through whom the promised son was born. No mention of Rebekah, the wife of Isaac and mother of Jacob. No mention of Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob. But Matthew mentions Tamar, Rahab, Roa, Ruth, and Bathsheba. So let's talk for a moment about these women in the genealogy, the four mothers of Jesus. You have Ruth, who might be the most morally spotless and unimpeachable woman in the Old Testament. Her first husband dies, and then she marries a distant relative of the deceased husband and has a son. Boaz is that husband. Obed is the son. But then you have Tamar, who also was a widow. She disguises herself as a prostitute and tricks her father-in-law Judah into sleeping with her and conceives a child. That child is a link in the line that leads to Jesus through deception and trickery. Rahab was also a prostitute. Lastly, there's Bathsheba, who is taken advantage of by King David. And then David later has her husband Uriah sent to the front lines in battle for the purpose of having him killed so that David can then marry Bathsheba for himself. Something else that's noteworthy. One of the commonalities between these four women is that none of them are Israelites. Tamar and Ruth are Canaanites. Ruth, I'm sorry, Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Ruth is a Moabite. Bathsheba is a Hittite. And so part of what these four women are doing from the opening of this gospel is showing us that Jesus is for the whole world. This line that leads to Jesus is a picture of the world. Borrowing an idea from Tim Keller, the line gives us kings and prostitutes, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, saints and sinners, but God works through all of them to bring Jesus into the world. The gospel is good news for the whole world. Matthew will end this gospel by giving the Great Commission and sending the disciples out into the world to preach the good news. And we have a picture of the gospel for the whole world from this opening genealogy. We come to our second section, and sections two and three will be a little bit more brief. We looked at Abraham to David. Now we look at David to the exile. David is the great king of Israel. He's the man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant where he promises David and his line an offspring who will have a kingdom that will never end. Ultimately, that points to Jesus. In its immediate wake, though, Solomon is the son of David and successor. You read about them and the other monarchs, mainly in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. They also appear in some of the prophetic books. Those books are, if we're being honest, 
not usually the most commonly studied among Christians. Although a lot of very interesting things happen in those stories. The Davidic dynasty could be an HBO series. But I just know that these books are not typically what the average Christian, where we have our greatest area of biblical knowledge. And so, to most of us, the kings in the Davidic dynasty can be fairly obscure people. But it's a very colorful family, picking back up in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We've already discussed David. He seduces a married woman. But the one thing to highlight is that Matthew doesn't actually name Bathsheba. Matthew names the other women in this genealogy, but calls Bathsheba the wife of Uriah. Why? I think Tim Keller is on to something when he suggests that it's not about downplaying Bathsheba. Rather, it's more reminding us of Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who David had killed. And mentioning Uriah, it confronts us with David's great sin. David has a son with the wife of another man. Also, I should mention that David, the son that David and Bathsheba first have actually dies. Solomon is born later. The genealogy does not hide from the sins of people in the line of Jesus. We've already seen that in the first section, but we see it on an even grander scale with the kings and some of their truly horrendous behavior. We aren't defined by where we come from, for good or for ill. If we come from greatness, that doesn't just transfer to us at birth. We have to live our own lives. And if we come from infamy, that does not doom us. It can feel that way sometimes. It can be unfortunate in our lives, but it doesn't have to be. Jesus is descended from killers and prostitutes and adulterers. We're going to elaborate on the kings and quickly go through some of these. It might be easy to assume that the kings of Israel were pretty good, but it's usually not the case. There are a few good kings amidst a mostly bad group of kings. Something that's noteworthy about this genealogy at this point is that Matthew gives 14 kings in this midsection. If you cross-reference it with the Old Testament, there's more than 14 people in the genealogy. And so that's not something to panic about. Matthew is not trying to be exhaustive with this list. It would be like someday if Robbie has a son and you gave a family genealogy of my family to link me and my grandson. He still ultimately does come from my line, and so that's basically what Matthew does at places. Sometimes they'll skip a generation or two or three. Um, but he's continuing a line in the lineage of direct descendants. Um, again, he's not concerned with giving every single person Matthew seemed to be more concerned with giving three lists of 14 names to keep it ordered. Um, Matthew also gives us variety in this list because we see both the good and the bad. Verse 7, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. Solomon is a son of David. He spends lavishly on building projects for Israel. 
his son, Rehoboam, has similar lavishness and has to continue raising taxes. Things get so bad during his reign that Israel is no longer a unified nation. And really, this is one of the most important events in the entire Old Testament. And I also think it's one of the most overlooked facts of Israel's history, that within two generations of King David, Israel is split into two kingdoms. You have the Davidic monarchy in the south, and then you have an independent northern kingdom. And the north and south never reunite. Next, you have Abijah. He ends up making similar blunders. Verse 8, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Jehoshaphat, pretty good king. His son Joram, not so good. Uzziah, kind of in the middle. Uh, I'll pick up the pace here, looking at verses 9 and 10. Matthew lists Ahaz. Now, this is at a time when the sin in Israel is at a fever pitch. Ahaz fails to listen to the prophet Isaiah. He fails to trust in God. He tries to exercise his own control. He makes diplomatic blunders, which will seal Israel's fate and ultimate collapse. He's followed by Hezekiah, one of three, maybe four good kings that the Israelites have. But his son Manasseh might be the worst king Israel has. It's kind of like having Tom Brady and then Mac Jones. I say that just to help you remember. Manasseh is one of the most wicked of the Israelite kings. He builds pagan altars in the temple courts. He practices sorcery. He also sacrifices one of his own sons. Josiah, mentioned in verse 10, is a good king. He does a lot to restore or to try to restore stability to Israel. He reinstates the Passover. And so you see this teeter-tottering of good and bad kingdoms in a kingdom overall that is in a downward spiral. Jeconiah is the last king listed in this second section. He is the last king of Israel in the line. He is wicked and reigns for a few months. Ultimately, he's actually replaced by a nephew who's not listed in this genealogy because the nephew is not a direct descendant. Matthew will start listing, uh, in the next section, Jeconiah's son, Shealtiel. Again, this is a very brief cross-section of these kings. It's quite the ragtag group. But Matthew ends verse 11 by talking about the deportation to Babylon. Now, everything in this genealogy has been centered around people, but the beginning of the third list of names focuses on an event. And that brings us to our third section, which will be the shortest section, exile to Jesus. Most of the people in this last list are actually unknown to us. We just have their names. I mentioned earlier that the kingdom of Israel was divided for most of its history. The genealogy is focused on the southern kingdom. After generations of sin and numerous prophets who had warned southern Israel and their kings... They're conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and they are exiled out of the promised land. It's a divine judgment from God upon an unfaithful Israel. They lose the kingdom. They lose Jerusalem. The temple is destroyed. The people are deported to a foreign land. 
the darkest days in the history of ancient Israel. But what this genealogy reminds us of is that though the monarchy did not reign and the land was lost, that the line was not forgotten. When Jerusalem fell, that might have looked like it was the end, but God was still at work. That's what all of this shows us, that God has been at work throughout time, throughout history. When Jesus went to the cross, when the disciples saw their beloved teacher brutally crucified, they thought it was all over, but it was only just the beginning. Throughout church history, people have tried to persecute the church, ban the Bible, kill Christians, yet God's word has continued to be preached. His church has persevered. And for many of us, I'm sure we have stories in our own lives, times that seemed utterly hopeless, times where it seemed like there was no way out, yet God brought us through. God brought redemption. God continued to work through this line because the Lord is faithful to his promises. He was faithful to the promise he made to Abraham of providing offspring. He was faithful in his promise to David to provide a king whose kingdom would never end. And that's what this group reminds us of and this list reminds us of. Verse 12, the genealogy picks up where it left off. Jeconiah to his son Shealtiel and his son Zerubbabel. Now, about 50 years after the exile, southern Israel is allowed to return to the promised land. Zerubbabel is significant because he would be appointed as the governor over the Israelites at the end of the exile. He's also significant because he's the last name in this list that we know until you get to Joseph. None of the people after Zerubbabel are mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. Where did Matthew get these other names from? We know that there were genealogical records for at least some of the Israelites. We know this because there are records mentioned by ancient historians like Josephus. Given the prominence of this line, it's certainly plausible that records were still kept. Matthew ends this third genealogy by finally arriving at Joseph and Mary and then to Jesus. It says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. From Abraham to Jesus. We see the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God. We see the plan of God. And we see that the Messiah has come to the world. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. I'll close with this. As we've studied this genealogy, and as I've been saying, it is a powerful reminder of God's work throughout history. The promises that God made to Abraham and then fulfilled. The promises that God made to David and then fulfilled. All throughout history, God has been at work. We see him at work in this genealogy that leads us to the Lord Jesus. But it also points us to our mission in the world which is God's redemptive purpose and gospel through Jesus Christ to redeem a sinful and fallen humanity. It's a major theme of Matthew's gospel. It's a major theme of Matthew's Christmas story. But it's also a major theme of the Bible itself, God's mission for the world. Christmas should be a reminder of that. As God's only son, Christ Jesus, came into the world. He came for a purpose, 
to go to the cross and to die for the sins of the world so that he could forgive. And so it's important to understand what God has done throughout history, but also what God is doing in the world today. The Old Testament points forward to Christ. The Old Testament points forward to the king from the line of David. The Gospels are the fulfillment of those promises. The church's job today is to share that good news with the world. It's something that most of us know is important, but it's also something that many of us struggle with. But sharing the good news and being disciples of Christ and being witnesses to the faith that we have and serving and loving people are what God calls us to do. And so we look at this genealogy at the beginning of the New Testament. It's not just a bunch of names to skip over so that we can get to something more interesting. Rather, these are the chapters in God's story leading up to Christ and in his work of bringing redemption to the world. Abraham, David, the exile. Abraham was promised a son. Jesus is the ultimate son to, to Abraham. David was promised a king from his line whose kingdom would never end. Jesus is the true king who ushers in the kingdom of heaven. The exile looked like the place where Israel ended. In our sin, we are exiled from God. Jesus is the one who brings us back to God and restores the fellowship. And in these 17 verses, we get a picture of that. It's going to be a great study at Matthew. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, may we glorify you. Lord, we see your redemptive purposes throughout history. May we be edified by that. Lord, at this time of year, as we remember the Christ coming into the world, may we study this genealogy and think of it in a different way, Lord, that in it we see your providence. Lord, at this time of year, where even the secular world sings so many songs that are glorifying you. Lord, may we be empowered and emboldened to share the good news with those around us that the Savior of the world has come into the world, and then he invites all of us to know him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.